Hey listeners, before we get into this episode, I have a quick ask to make. I started this podcast as a research project on how to be a top individual contributor in the product design space. My goal for the show was to learn what it takes to be an individual contributor that's doing amazing, impactful work that they love doing day in and day out and getting paid top dollar while they do it. Becoming that type of individual contributor is the ultimate job security. With close to 100 hours of interview recordings, this has naturally led to the creation of the short form video articles that synthesize my learnings into 10 minute listens of actionable content. You might recognize these as my morning walk episodes or the hashtag shorts episodes. To my surprise, those episodes have been very well received and listeners have enjoyed the synthesis of what I've learned. This has led to the next chapter of my research project, which is beginning to synthesize what I've learned into a new newsletter called Thinking Out Loud About Design that you can subscribe to right now for free. Thinking Out Loud About Design is an email newsletter and podcast that basically contains all my synthesis for my long form interviews. It's pure distilled learnings that you can apply to your career immediately. This content is for you if you are a couple years into your career and you're trying to make that move from mid-level to senior designer and senior designer to staff designer. I mainly focus on becoming high-performing individual contributors in the product design industry. A free subscription gives you full access to the newsletter, podcast episodes, and website. You won't have to worry about missing anything because every new edition of the newsletter goes directly into your inbox. So my ask is this. If you have gotten any value out of the way of product design, or if it's helped you in any way or someone you know, please subscribe to Thinking Out Loud About Design and get the distilled learnings on being a staff-level individual contributor. You can find a link to the newsletter in the show notes of every episode of this podcast and on my LinkedIn page. Just look up Caden Damiano. Thanks again for listening and supporting the way of product design. I wouldn't be doing this if you guys weren't listening. Now, on to the show. Hey listeners, welcome back to the show. I have a great nugget today on how you as a design org can build stakeholder confidence in the strategic direction that you propose. In this interview, I chat with Matt Davis, who is a UX designer at Lenovo. We talk about the challenge of designing and context switching across a very large portfolio of products. He works on smart speakers, every ThinkPad you can point at, and now is working on Lenovo's competitor to the HoloLens. When you're working on so many products, how can design become a strategic partner with the product org if they can't focus on the big problems each product faces? At Lenovo, they have an approach to developing thought leadership as a design org that I found pretty interesting. And it's something that every design org, big or small, can apply to influence those critical decision-making moments in a business and really provide business value. So enough for me. Let's hear from Matt Davis. How's it going, Matt? Do you want to maybe just do a quick intro for yourself to say like where you've been, how did you get into the industry, and then I guess you could speak to like how we've met, and then we'll just go from there. Sure. Yeah. So I, I recall us meeting at, it would have been XD Immersive, and that's oof, that's a little over a year ago now. And it's hard to actually recall a lot of the events that transpired at that event with all the things going on in my life these days. But I remember we engaged in some good communication. I know at the time you were, you were I think, 
either still a student or you were looking for work at the yeah, time. Yeah. And congratulations, you have landed a job. Thank you. Um, it's, it's not easy. I've been there. I've been through that. Um, as you guys called it, the hustle. I'm looking at the slide deck you sent me. And yeah, you definitely know what the hustle is uh, like. I'm looking at your internship work. So you did Virginia Tech, did a master's degree, and you had a bachelor's in human factors, a uh, master's in uh, human computer interaction. And it looks like you were specializing in AR VR, right? Or Yeah, that's, that's right. To a degree. <laughs> yeah, I know. So when I, when I started at Virginia Tech, or even before I got to Virginia Tech, I knew, I, I, I suppose I was more technically inclined. I, I loved the idea of engineering and robotics and spacecraft and that's what originally piqued my interest in engineering and being a virginia native it seemed fitting to attend one of the, the more prominent engineering schools right we had virginia tech uva mason i think a handful of others competing it remained as difficult then as it does now to get into these big AAA premier schools um, but at the time I, I actually jumped into mechanical engineering wanting to design roller coasters or possibly even get into robotics. And I made it through all my physics and dynamics courses. And I, I think towards the tail end of my sophomore year, I quickly realized that thermodynamics were just not really peaking my all that much, right? I was making it through the classes, but it just wasn't doing it for me. And it was around that time where I had my first summer gig. It wasn't quite an internship. It was more of like a, a research associate position at Virginia Tech, part of the Ronald E. McNair Scholars Program. And that was kind of my first foray into human factors. And I did a little bit of like commercial airline cockpit research. I met a few people there, worked with some great folks, Tanya Smith-Jackson being one of them. And that kind of got the ball rolling. And I ended up making a transition into industrial systems engineering. And shortly after I started building like front end apps for no back end for me at the time. And one thing led to another, decided I wanted to stay and pursue my master's degree, especially seeing as though I wanted to stay in UX. And I had a growing interest in AR and virtual reality, especially around interaction design. And during my time at school, I've just some amazing people. Uh, my immediate advisor, Dr. Joseph Gabbard being one of them, working with some of the top folks in the AR VR research domain. Doug Bowman being one of them. And that's that's kind of a bit of a wrap around my my education. So maybe spent too many years in school, but I thought they were all all those years were worth worth my while. And almost or nearly every summer I was engaged in some kind of very interesting or unique internship experience or research research experience that I think helped kind of shape my my thinking and how I tackle problems even to this day which no, I haven't been out of school for that long. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I'm looking at your internship experience. And I think for uh, like a lot of employers, you really you didn't take a summer off, it looks like. Definitely packed in the work just to get educated. So, I mean, there's you can never get too much education, right? right. What I thought was really interesting, what I thought was uh, really interesting was that your, your NASA work, what about cockpit design and and I'm looking at like a screenshot of like a UI for, I think what it is a cockpit. Like what about the design for something that is probably as high stakes as uh, a vehicle that could, you know, crash or blow up. What about it? 
put you on to that path of like, oh, I want to be an interaction designer? Yeah, that's great. The, the NASA internship was, I would say, uniquely special. It was part of the NASA Ames Aeronautics Academy, which still exists at Ames and a number of other NASA research centers. So small plug, I highly recommend students who are actively pursuing their bachelor's or even their master's to, to pursue that program. But essentially, that was my first opportunity for me to get my feet wet in some kind of user interface design. What we were designing, the idea and the thought of an EFB uh, spelled out essentially electronic flight bag, uh, almost if not nearly every single commercial airline pilot to this day, um, to this day now, uh, kind of pilots an aircraft with essentially an iPad or a tablet-like device that keeps a lot of their maps and I couldn't even begin to describe all the other things, but airport diagrams and kind of geolocation specs and sheets on this iPad. I mean, the whole idea was for us to try and do it, kind of uniquely tailor that experience for folks flying in Alaska airspace. And one of the, the challenges with that is that a lot of these pilots are flying prop planes, very low altitude and mountainous, right? Very cloudy, dense clouds and the weather can change in an instant, right? It can change mile to mile. And so it was a unique opportunity to explore what kind of visual affordances could we take from pre-existing technologies that are tracking weather forecast, um, maybe even some video footage, and how can we pipe that in and make it accessible for pilots to use to kind of heighten their situational awareness? Um, it's been many years since I worked on that project. I, I actually Googled it not too long ago to see the current status and they they ended up doing a few trials in Alaska airspace with with a lot and a lot of the design looked very similar to what I had developed with the team and it, so it seems as though it's something that's being put into use to some degree which was a lot of fun and it was a challenge in that regard that's a really a uh, cool project i mean how does it feel that you're preventing uh material for survival movies from being made because isn't that like the whole premise of like a survival movie like a prop plane's flying in alaska and then it crashes and you've created software that could be potentially saving pilots lives which is pretty cool but you obviously have um an eye for the details because whenever i talk to you you know you just you just get really honed in on the nuance of yeah. the problems that you're solving which leads me to wanting to talk about your experience as a UX designer at Lenovo, where it's really all in the details. I mean, huge product portfolio, very large complexity of the products you're offering. Do you want to just talk a little bit about what you've done at Lenovo and what you're doing right now? Sure, I can share a bit. So I've, I've now been at Lenovo I'm nearing three years. Hard to believe it's only been three years. I feel like well, I don't know. It's interesting. At times, I feel like I've been here for much longer. And, and another, at other times, I feel like I've only been here a day or two. And I think it's because of the nature of the work that we do and the, the proportionate size of our UX team to the company as a whole. And so to elaborate a bit more on that, our, our team, at least our immediate UX, what we call our UXD, User Experience Design Group here, we just under or just around 30 folks. And we span Beijing, Yokohama, and Morrisville. And so a disciplinary team. And what's, the, what's beautiful about that is that we are able to 
kind of approach problems um, from different and, and unique perspectives. And it also allows us to kind of work on, on various projects that be offered right in the, in the Asia market versus the, the American market. But to get closer to the, your question, I've worked on quite a number of things at Lenovo, uh, right? So this will range from the obvious laptops, <laughs> accessories, ThinkPads, think thing pads. with the Think logo on it. Yeah, ThinkPads. I've touched most like commercial laptops. So, right, these are these could be your your larger ruggedized mobile workstations that are being used by graphic artists and um, visual design studios from Pixar to your XYZ oil and gas company, um, all the way down to like your standard fair laptop that you'd see at like a Deloitte or a Booz Allen. Beyond laptops, I've more recently been working on our augmented reality hardware and software. Um, we recently announced our first commercially um, commercially positioned headset called the Think Reality A6, and I was heavily involved in the design of, of that headset. And I worked with a cross-disciplinary team of engineers and research scientists, very talented folks, um, cross-culture. And I continue to work on, on several hardware initiatives as well in that domain. Beyond that, I, I work on you know developing what we'll call UX concepts or UX vision concepts. So those are like smaller, very small incubator opportunities for our team to show thought leadership within our UX team and something that we can present to Lenovo at large, right? So if, if we may have an idea for a particular controller design or, <clears throat> excuse me, a like a new concept for a smart office device, we, we can help generate ideas and, and back that by you know, research that we've done, whether it's eth ethnographic, mobile ethnography, or global ethnography, and um, kind of tackle problems that way. I feel like I'm getting to that rambling point. So I think I'm, I'm going to here, um, but go to Lenovo.com. Very, we'll <laughs> <laughs> go to Lenovo and hit the category page. Matt's probably worked on it. There's a lot of different directions I want to go here, but you uh, did mention something about thought leadership, which is something we discussed uh, before this interview. You mentioned that your boss, I think it's the director of design at Lenovo, has made it an initiative for designers on the design team to demonstrate thought leadership. And from what I understood, it was the intention was to influence the product prioritization with stakeholders, right? In your own words, like how, why is thought leadership such a big initiative on your design team? Yeah. So <clears throat> on our design team, thought leadership is, is extremely critical, right? So our, our resources, because as I mentioned, proportionately, we, we are a fairly small team for the large amount of products that Lenovo ships and sells every year. How big is your um, team? We're roughly 30 folks and Lenovo is 58,000 strong, I think, at the turn of this year. So <laughs> yeah, I, I won't do the math there for you, but... <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, products-wise, I, I, I suspect we're we're designing and manufacturing and shipping close to a hundred, like I don't know, 
around that variety and it, it probably grows from there it's hard to say especially now as we've entered smart office and 5g and accessories and whatnot um but yeah so the the opportunity is ripe for us to to kind of showcase what we believe i would say what, what's a better word for ultimate uh, the most well thought out experience right that's not prone to error and so what these these thought experiments that we have and we tend to i'll try to keep it brief here but we obviously have gates and key milestones right for for any product but there's there's a certain gate which we kind of just define as the product kickoff or the concept kickoff and that's where a lot of different stakeholders from your your executive management engineering and development industrial design ux included we all kind of share our vision for what this product should be some of this some elements of this vision are are more baked than others but there's there's still obvious room for areas to further explore and to refine the say tooling start right where things then become very much more difficult to enact any kind of change so leading up to cko or pko this is ux's prime opportunity to engage in a lot of customer facing research do some hard data science and data retrieval and just try to understand who our customer base is who the target users are for this product that we're trying to make right um and by doing that research and by tying it up in a nice succinct and coherent story where we're not only showing them a design a design grounded in research right to build confidence and to help at the end of the day right help us prove ourselves and show thought leadership. And then in turn, these stakeholders will begin to see, you know, see us as having more credibility, which we already have, but it's a, a good opportunity to build that credibility and that confidence in our team and our ability to kind of push forward what we think is, is the, the correct vision. Now, whether or not we get that at the end of the day, right, because it's, Again, many stakeholders, users and customers are one of them, but not the only one, especially in a, as large a business as Lenovo's in. And so sometimes, you know, we'll have to reluctantly accept certain traits or features in a design, but having that initial UX vision helps kind of set the tone, if you will. Yeah. So you have a big meeting where there's a bunch of stakeholders talking about vision. I'm guessing it's near like December or January. Is it like a yearly thing or a quarterly thing? you have time to prepare for it right yeah it'll it'll depend on the, the project cycle and the, the product in general and how quickly they want to push a product out you know depending on what our competition is doing for instance but yeah we, we usually have a decent headway some some headway is very clear and the the date is, is set other times it's just more fluid and it's hard to determine when those those gates or those milestones are and so sometimes we have to we're left to kind of leverage pre-existing work that we've done, but, but, but only work that we, we deem is relatable to the product that we're working on. Right. But yeah, I mean, we could to answer your question more directly. We'll have anywhere between hmm, two to six weeks. Um, yeah. To, to kind of spool up research, build confidence, you know, attain customer voices, wrap that up in a, in a story essentially. Right. And be able to present that either 
a week prior to say the concert kickoff or present some shorter version of that in a concept kickoff event for Rita. So that is not a ton of time to really heavily influence with all the other stuff you're doing, you know, with, because you, you work on a lot of products, you have to craft some sort of narrative. You call it a story um, quickly before this meeting so that UX has an opportunity to heavily influence the, the use like the usability and the, the customer experience. So like no pressure. It's like, you need to come up with like a deck that's going to be <laughs> convincing enough to one create, build confidence in your guys' expertise and to build confidence in the direction that you are proposing with the story, right? So how do you craft a narrative like that in such a short period of time? Right. So again, it's, it's very product dependent. So for instance, to, to preface, for instance, say your, your typical T series or X series or P series, for those who are listening, who know Lenovo's products, they'll, they more, may more quickly understand what those are. They're essentially notebooks and yoga and whatnot. Um, but these products, they go through, right? I think for most major companies, they go through, and, and even even automotive companies, right? These products, they they clean sheet one year, and then they're refreshed many years thereafter, right? So it's subtle changes. Maybe a port is, is repositioned or taken away or added, or we make slight modifications to the display quality or the material finish. And so I would say the UX vision is most critical when we're getting to the clean sheet gate, right? So this is every two or three years or so. And again, it's not every two or three years for every product Lenovo makes. It just depends on when that product was introduced to the market. And you know, a lot of marketing and management decisions will drive how quick they'll want to turn around a new clean sheet, right? It's not always just two or three years. It could be a year, it could be six months, who, who knows? That's not always my job to know but my job to help influence, right? Um, let me get back to your question. Shoot, I may have forgot your question. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, like how do you, let's say like a clean sheet um, is happening. And I, I think designers, every company has uh, some kind of form of this clean sheet, right? It's like the start of an initiative mm-hmm. and we're going to go into a room I mean, ideally, you've met with a lot of the stakeholders in smaller meetings beforehand to create alignment. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's like leading up to an opportunity. Well, first, I think it's like up to UX to identify that there is an opportunity to really influence the user experience, right? Mm-hmm. Or you guys want to do this like upfront research before the meeting. But yeah, my question was, that like, okay, as a product design team, you, you spot an opportunity to really improve the direction of your company's product line. There's a meeting coming up. How can, how do you, how does your team quickly craft a narrative? How do you collect the data you need, the qualitative data, the quantitative data to craft this narrative? And, and then you could also here just touch on the art type uh, format that you guys use at Lenovo uh, if you want I think that would be a really good 
framework to talk to instead of using personas and stuff, right? Right. Okay, cool. So again, it's the, the time is fairly dependent on the product and how quickly they want to push it out, right? Or at least begin the, the larger development effort. And so in that time, in that time that we're allotted, when we can essentially catch wind of, of a new product coming through, we, we essentially will spool up whatever research methods we feel are best suited to provide us, um, not always the quickest, again, it depends on schedule, but the most robust kind of customer insight data that we can retrieve. And I forget the, the proper terminology for this, but you know, we're not solely going through one medium to, to, to attain these insights, right? So we will conduct a survey, possibly, right? We'll, we'll potentially utilize Dscout, right? And so really quick. Sure. What is Dscout so, for those who don't know? Sure, sure. Dscout is a, a mobile ethnographic tool, which essentially allows researchers to get into the hearts and minds of folks without physically being there. Now, I, I agree there's a tremendous amount of benefit with physically traveling to the end user or to your potential users and speaking with them face-to-face. -face. But what Dscout essentially allows you to do is connect with these folks via their mobile phones. And it's, it's an app that anyone can download at this, at this moment. And you can just screen. I mean, I don't know how large their pool is now. It must be in the tens of thousands, if not more. And you can screen for folks specifically for the, the kind of user that you're looking for, right? You can develop your screeners and your missions and your questions. And the beauty of it is that you're able to capture video footage and photos of, of what you're actively looking for, right? So I've run maybe four or five D scouts in my time at Lenovo, all centered around like the customer experience whether it would be like an evolving workspace. So what technologies and processes are changing within their workspace, right? What apprehensions did they have before moving, say, into a hoteling or hot desking experience? And do those apprehensions stay true or not? And they're able to they and verbally tell me that while they look at their phone. And what's extremely powerful, and this may be, we may hit on this later, but what's really powerful about DScout and just capturing video in general is that it helps us craft that narrative even better. It's, it's, it's content that we can showcase in a deck or in some other medium. And so that these stakeholders, you know, included are not simply hearing it from my mouth, but they're actively seeing it and hearing it from potential customers of this product that we're going to be building. And it helps just champion UX in general and helps right establish or continue to build our credibility as a team as a whole. Okay. So you collect a lot of these artifacts. So in our earlier conversations, you put, make a big emphasis on collecting actual like recorded artifacts, videos from ethnographic research, heavily using this tool called DScout to have people record into their phones like their responses to your questions and then any like highlights you guys could use to place in your place into your uh, deck to just craft this narrative that this is the direction we should go. So, okay. So you go, you collect an, a lot of, you do some ethnographic research, you collect a lot of artifacts, which is something I like to do when I'm making uh, reports 
to stakeholders is definitely like if you see if you have like a good clip from your research get it to work in your powerpoint figure out how to make it work and then test it before the presentation so that works but you go from there and yes um you at, at lenovo you guys don't use personas so you you craft something else can you talk a little bit more about that based off these artifacts you guys gather sure so yeah personas are an interesting topic within our team we, we tend to not try to use them in, in certain instances because we feel like it, it's essentially siloing or it's, it's, a, it's a more hyper-focused view into what realistically is a, a, a varied community of individuals, right? And so the hyper-focused folks with a name and day-in-the-life activities and whatnot, we, we try to, and we haven't, well, I personally haven't worked within personas and archetypes all that much, but being beneficial when we're targeting within our research, a large group of folks that are varied in some way. And we want to try and pull attributes from certain characteristics of, of groups of people that we define, right? And so one way in doing that is, is developing these archetypes. And I can speak to one of the first projects I worked on at Lenovo, I guess you could say it was my first big win, air quotes, was around this evolving workspaces work, where I essentially was tasked with understanding, right, what, what technologies and what, what kind of environments are folks working in. And one way in, to help essentially define what kind of products Lenovo could build in the future around smart office, right? And how we kind of characterized or grouped these folks into these archetypes, we had, we had archetyped them as birds in this instance. And I can, I can kind of list them out to you here. We, we categorized folks as either a seagull, a hummingbird, a snowbird, a goose, and an eagle. Without kind of elaborating on each one, for example, a seagull would have been someone who travels often and works at desk spaces, right? So this, a seagull could essentially be like someone who works at varying we work spaces within a city, for instance, right? And then we have a hummingbird, which is someone who works primarily at an unassigned work location. So again, similar in nature to, to the seagull, um, but they're working within their free will to work wherever they like, whether it be home, coffee shop, and they essentially do not work at any kind of predefined workspace, right? So they could be working within a hoteling environment or a hot desking environment where they, they come to work every day and they've got to find a new desk to sit at. So by doing that, we, we were able to kind of work our, work our recommendations and our design solutions in a way that matched or mapped towards these individual archetypes and not an individual persona. So there, there's some nuance to kind of how we describe each of those, and I'm by no means an expert in trying to define what an, arch, an archetype versus persona, but that was my my best take at it. Yeah, and I'm guessing at Lenovo, like you make hardware for a general purpose laptop or like workstation for, I'd say, I wouldn't say non-designers, but I don't see designers using ThinkPads. but that's interesting. So the art, the archetypes are more of an abstraction to cover more of a general group of people instead of yeah. 
trying you to generate empathy for Tommy, our mm-hmm. persona. It's more about generating uh, empathy for, okay, well, this is like a market segment we have. This is how they behave. That's, that's correct. And here's how our competitors are not like, you know, and then you're going into your recommendations. Like here's our, how our competitors are not addressing these archetypes here. Um, I'm looking at the slide you sent me and there's a slide that goes over the archetypes. I'm guessing this was, was the deck you guys showed. These screenshots right here. Yeah, just a handful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for those that do not have the luxury of looking at the, the slides, I it has uh, you know five different birds, but you have check marks under each one. So you have like seagull, hummingbird, snowbird, goose, and eagle. And then there's check marks under the seagull, hummingbird, and snowbird. But in this the last couple columns with the geese and eagle, there's an X's. Is this showing like what archetypes you guys want to focus on that's correct so we to to help drive like product design and concept design around essentially the the hoteling or the hot desking kind of consumer or worker we wanted to primarily focus on you could say those birds right folks who were within a hoteling or hot desking environment folks who are actively spending their days working within different work environments, right? They're, they're commuting often throughout a day and they're not heavily static at one predefined office day to day, week to week. And so we would, again, design the screener around trying to loosely define these archetypes and be able to essentially weed out the folks who we thought interesting candidates nonetheless, but essentially not greatly suited for the study and the, the products we were working to build towards. Yeah. Okay. Do you think there'd be any benefit? Cause I'm guessing a lot of your work is done with hardware design. Like what would be the benefit for someone working directly with just software and services, like working with digital interfaces, mm-hmm. um, not necessarily designing the computers people work on, but like, would there be benefit to using D scout for that kind of work? Sure. So D scout, it's it's definitely more of an experiential tool, right? So I've con- I've participated in a few DSCOUT studies of, that were not of my own, but those I've participated in from from other parties, other companies who remain anonymous. And they're, they're, it's definitely more experiential in its nature where one had me walking through a Best Buy store and I assume it was being run by Best Buy researchers to essentially showcase the design of the aisles, where customer service was, kind of talk through and map out for them what it's like to walk into my personal Best Buy and, and approach a certain product or or a, a kind of product stand, you could say, of, of various things. And so this was a really unique opportunity, I assume, again, for Best Buy to not have to go into every single store that Best Buy owns, right? I assume they have only so many researchers and only so much time for them to observe folks firsthand but this was a unique tool for them to to have us walk into these stores for them and present them information through through our lens regarding the software yeah unfortunately at least in its current state dscout is not an ex- i would say like our primary tool for evaluating software i've used in the past to do some some quick cmf or color material finish studies where i'll i'll showcase like a essentially like a carousel of various images 
of laptops at, at different isometric views and I'll get kind of their immediate candid impressions and expressions of what they what they feel of the design but again right that that would only be one instance of, of research there we'd, we'd want to validate that with in-person um, kind of research right where they're actually physically handling the systems and whatnot for software at least within AR for now every because it needs to be essentially viewed within a headset right you can do some information architecture work you can you can try to verify and do heuristic analyses on some of the static images of a design, but to fundamentally understand how the the content's behaving, and then of course testing the various interaction modalities around gesture and voice and gaze and dwell, a lot of that or mostly all of that needs to be conducted with a headset on someone's head, internal or external participants, you name it. Yeah, so you have to just decide like what in your toolbox you're going to use to get the answer to the research questions you want. So DScout seems really good for generative research where you're just looking at like workflows and stuff like that. Not, not necessarily like there to inform any design decisions or to like validate any designs. Right. Yeah. It's, it's just more to like, see, tell me about how you do X task. Right. And then you start looking for patterns. Mm-hmm. Okay. So how do you take these skills? So one, like if you need to craft narrative real fast, you need to figure out a quick way to generate artifacts because it's more powerful to come from actual people and like video clips or audio clips to the facts that you're trying to convey. And then for at least for, for large market type products like laptops using like an archetype or a persona allows you to kind of condense like who you're prioritizing your design decisions for and then going from there to give recommendations and stuff like that. How do you use this toolkit using storytelling to build confidence with stakeholders with something so cutting edge like augmented reality where there's obviously it's not exactly, it's not ready for prime time in the market besides people using their phones, right? How... How can you avoid the trap of people just saying, or like PM saying like, oh, we'll just do the MVP and then we'll fix it later. How do you get ahead on really impacting the experience design early with such a cutting end project? Yeah, I guess right. that, is, that is my question. It's just like, how, how okay. it's, it's just, you know, there's obvious stakeholder meetings where, you know, the market opportunity is obvious. Like you could react right now. You, the turnaround for creating a solution might be like six months to really impact business decisions, but the impact of your work might be a little, the time horizon is probably a little bit further in this kind of line of work, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, to, to get at, to get at your question, uh, building, building empathy, you know, credibility and trying to craft a narrative around say augmented reality experiences it's it can be tricky right augmented reality in my opinion is still kind of in its infancy stages right there's there are big time competitors microsoft magic leap fusix and real being being a handful of them and lenovo is definitely eager to to get into that space and so being able to help drive the experience design and the vision beforehand it, it can be difficult at times when 
essentially, right, we're we're crafting products that Lenovo has not crafted before, right? And so we we tend to take very careful attention. We put careful attention on how we pursue and how we develop these devices, specifically around the Think Reality A6. I, I worked with very, very talented researchers on our team to essentially uh, take what was a kind of a rendering of a concept of an idea of what the headset could be. And over the course of six to 12 months or so, we helped uh, over various iterations kind of design, test, or design, build, and test um, various form factors. And the, the beauty of it all is that we were able to capture all of this work that was being done at every stage in the process. And so when we would have our our gates and our, our key milestones, we could share imagery of what the testing environment looked like, right? And we would also take these devices and, and essentially have them evaluated by what we deemed as experts in the field, right? So not only were we, 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 did, we did a good job not to create these devices within a vacuum, right? We wanted expert opinion, folks who are heavily engaged in the AR community, whether it be startup or, or larger end companies who are developing AR content for various headsets for a number of different businesses out in the world who have access and who have been working with companies who are actively trying to pursue AR and design AR into you know, pre-existing workflows. And being able to not only test our products internally and externally, but show them to, to folks who are essentially veterans in the field helped build confidence. And we were able to help showcase their opinions and their attitudes towards the design of our hardware and what will is now becoming our software. There's a larger push for, for software development now that the hardware is essentially reaching a fairly more mature stage. But yeah, that's kind of the long end of it. So is Lenovo making their own augmented reality, like UI, like operating system then for your headsets? Yes. yes. Yeah. So yeah, we, we are, well, so we were leveraging existing like frameworks to a degree, but we, we are the design, the, the visual style, front end UI and interaction is definitely being designed in house. Yeah. Has there been a time where you are in a stakeholder meeting and <laughs> your presentation backfired. Um, let me give this some thought here. I suppose I have a knack for making extremely dense decks. I'd like to go into a level of fidelity, which may not always be required. Um, and essentially folks would see more of this, the further we got in our development process where it becomes less of an overall form factor. We've agreed on a form factor, but now there's all these subtleties and nuances to the material choice, uh, whether some, you know, a particular feature on the device has ridges and how thick it is and how wide it is and what's the Z travel of the buttons and, you know, all, all the, the, the intricacies that come with designing something that sits on a person's head. Um, there, there's always, 
well, I wouldn't say maybe always, but there, there are definitely opportunities to improve every aspect of it. And I, I always try to find, find those opportunities and provide mine, in turn, UXs that gets validated, not just from me, but from the team, the general UX team. And what we, what we feel is the best experience so that we're, we're showcasing what we feel is the most appropriate design for the most comfortable end user experience. Oftentimes, right, we may not always get what we want, but we make it very clear, right? So, so it backfires because you might go into too much of the weeds? That's correct. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe too much detail, yeah. But it, so it, and that kind of leads me to my next thing, which is something I've learned in my years working at Lenovo is, and I'm sure many of your um, prior podcast folks have kind of alluded to this, but a lot of these readouts are very much dependent or they should be designed dependently based on the audience, right? And so, of course, um, like a project manager may not always have the time to parse through, you know, a 60 to 100 page deck, right? Um, but the content in that deck may be extremely useful for industrial designers or engineers, right? And so I, I, I learned very quickly to help craft and shape the narrative in the, in the deck in a way that was designed specifically for the folks I was presenting to. Um, hence why I have many versions of many things that I work on. <laughs> you have multiple versions of decks depending on the audience? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I mean, with all the things you're working on, you're, you're making a, you're segmenting your, your decks. Is that, is that like what it takes to get uh, ideas sold at Lenovo or, or is it um, just one of your quirks? I think it's just one of my quirks. Uh, it, huh. it, the folks, yeah. If you, if you ask anyone that, that knows me or knows of me, uh, I essentially call myself the PowerPoint wizard. <laughs> I do almost all of my design recommendations and well, obviously decks in PowerPoint. I've become very good at doing that. I need to continue to build out my skill set around Adobe Photoshop. I'm familiar with Adobe XD and Illustrator to a degree, but I can essentially do things in PowerPoint that take me very little time, uh, whether it's animation, playback, you know, just general aesthetic. And so for me, it comes fairly easily, right? to help craft and build these decks out. But again, build them in a way that is still digestible and understandable across different cultures, different languages. Um, and so that's, I think that's one other thing I'll add, which is a lot of our, or most, if not all of our development in engineering is based out of Beijing and Shenzhen. And so, uh, you know, the, English is not always their their first language, very seldom actually, but they all speak very good English and I'm on call with them almost every week. And what I, what I pride myself in and what I encourage my, my teammates to do is to showcase their recommendations in a very visual way to help push forward, you know, and make it essentially just easier to understand across these varying cultures, right? It's one thing to share a number of how wide something needs to be, but if, if we can specifically show the width in context of the device 
or the accessory within context of the device and maybe how it is now and how we'd like to see it. That just helps build the understanding around what our recommendation is. And there's, there's very little room for, for questioning what exactly we're trying to strive for. Yeah. So it's, it's visualizing the numbers that you're creating. So, I mean, there's like a data visualization. I wouldn't call it a meme, but it's like popular one where instead of, instead of like showing how much like a, a whale weighs, like by putting a number on the slide, you just put a whale next to a diver or something like that on the, and so for you that, that helps break a lot of cultural and language barriers. It makes the job more interesting, I would say. If you have the time and the energy, it, it just makes for a more interesting look and feel, right? Something that is not very typically seen within like larger engineering companies. Not that I have a whole lot of exposure to other companies, but again, we are, we're very much an engineering technical company. And so, and I, I will add a lot of a lot of what we share, especially leading up to project kickoff, as we discussed earlier. It's not always just a, a UX vision based in, say, customer facing research, but it's also based in just general anthrop- anthropometric and human factors data, right? We, we pull a lot of that to help drive the sizing of our keyboards, key travel, you know, headset width and breadth and hitting that 95th percentile male and trying to get as low as the fifth percentile female and some, right? So a lot of that goes into the nature of our work as well. Yeah, it seems like a very research-heavy job being a UX designer at Lenovo. It's not like your typical product design gig. Sounds very heady. Yeah, uh, in in any one week, I'll be conducting user research, doing some aspect of hardware design alongside industrial designers and engineers. I'll be designing interaction concepts for augmented reality experiences. I'll be doing some user interface design. But again, I work I work within a, a fairly sizable team of very capable, you know, human factors researchers, UX designers, both hardware and software, data analysts. And we do have uh, one Unity developer, or what we what we'll often uh, likes to go as a 3D generalist who uh, has allowed us to become very agile, and I'm so grateful that he's on our team. We're uh, coming up on time, so I'm just going to give you some final questions. So for a designer wanting to work in not just software but hardware, what do you think is the most, I guess, like the most important skill you need to prioritize to work at a Lenovo or you know, not just working at a normal tech company with a UI, but what would be that skill to prioritize to get into like a junior role? Sure. So one thing when it comes to hardware, and I, I could say this is more, makes itself more apparent with head-worn hardware or even like remote controls, anything that's handled or worn, as opposed to something that sits on a desk, I encourage folks to embrace ambiguity, right? And, and I, work very, very diligently to find unique ways to solve problems, to help differentiate the product, not just from competitors, but from kind of the status quo and what's expected of that product to look and behave, right? Um, I I say this because in our work, 
we we do we we are required or highly encouraged we encourage ourselves essentially it's part of our job to pull very rigid data around the human body right so i mentioned anthropometric data general human factors knowledge and we have tests texts and online materials and databases to help drive a lot of the decisions that are made however there's a lot of nuance in the design of this of this hardware right or and even when it comes to the design of augmented i'll say for instance this is what i work on augmented reality software where it's one thing to say you know this headset needs to fit such xy circumference at its height and at, it, at its peak and at its at its lowest point right the fifth percentile female but when you start to mix into the equation materials and, and material finish and text not only dealing with rigid materials but you're also incorporating elastic materials right the the anthropometric data and the human factors data will only get you so so very far right there's still this this area of opportunity where you need to in, embrace that ambiguity and think of interesting ways to to solve you know these these problems that you'll run into I, I would also say to add on to that have a strong disbelief system so always start i encourage myself and i encourage others to start from a position of curiosity and skepticism and try to put put aside your preconceived ideas right about what you think this product should look like and, and we should question you know why we believe the things we do and why we believe it should be designed a certain way and then from there, try to work backwards, either through through research or th through data to understand whether or not your beliefs hold true or where you feel like there's nuance in those beliefs or ambiguity in those beliefs and try to weed those out, right? Yeah, so the data is only, the data is not gonna tell you how to design your product. You're gonna have to come up with that yourself based off those decisions. So it's still on you. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. That is a really good advice. One last question since we'll, we're almost done. If you had a time machine, I think you're familiar, you're familiar with this question. If you listen to the podcast, mm -hmm. if you had a time machine yes. and you could uh, change anything in your career up to this point, what would you change? And let me reiterate you. If you had a time machine, you wouldn't be like, Oh, I wouldn't change anything. You totally would. <laughs> you would go back in time. It's real in this scenario. Yeah, so I'll say it is very difficult. But if I were to go back in time, and even now I should be doing much better. I, well, I should be doing a better job at this. But just just general networking, right? I've formed really great relationships with the people I worked very closely with, right? Through my internships, through my time at you know at Virginia Tech in college, and even now at Lenovo, I've I've formed a lot of great strong relationships with folks, not just within my immediate product teams, but within other product teams as well. And, but what I've, what I haven't done a great job at then and now is, is building my, my, my net of kind of just folks I can communicate ideas with specifically, I suppose around AR, VR, just UX in general, um, and building a larger network. I just feel like it would have helped me early, more earlier on kind of focus, focus my interest areas. 
get get some exposure, even if it was just through a messenger and LinkedIn, of of you know what other folks are doing, what their thoughts and feelings and attitudes are towards the work they do, the companies they work for, to help kind of ground me and and allow me to feel more confident in the decision I made in say taking my first job, right? Um, mm -hmm. Not to say I didn't have a fair amount of confidence in the decision that I made, and I'm glad I made it. I absolutely enjoy what I'm doing today. Yeah. But I think building that network and in turn building confidence in yourself and knowing that you're in the right place, doing the right work, I, I think is something that would be useful earlier, would be useful early on, especially in my college days. Yeah, just to get my first job and, and yeah. uh, having some feedback from other people on what they're doing, like getting, like what you, what would fulfill you the most? Sounds like you got pretty lucky. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a fair amount of luck. I would say every, so I'll say every single one of my work experiences, right. Whether it be internship or some project I worked on in school, they each kind of had a unique effect on how I see the world and how I, where I seek inspiration for the work that I do. Right. So you know, you take a quick look at my resume and you'll see, oh, okay, he was a researcher this summer, but then he designed interfaces the next summer. And now he's engaged in some strange AR interaction design, you know, during this school year. And it's hard sometimes, oftentimes to connect the dots. But in a lot of ways, I feel like all those experiences helped ground me in a way and helped kind of inspire me to pursue and help focus myself on where I was heading towards the future. And so I would, I would recommend and I would encourage folks to take on certain research opportunities, right? I know the hustle in school is all about <laughs> finding that big time internship, but oftentimes you'll find that, that research will, will kind of excite the brain in new ways and, and encourage new, new ways of thought that I feel like still hold true today and I'm still utilizing today and it's why I feel like I'm able to stay so agile in the work that I do, because I, I have a, a large variety of experiences to, to kind of harken back to. But that, I, I, that's my two cents there. Matt, thank you so much. You've provided a ton of great insights. Man, your job is crazy. That's a lot of stuff to work on. But thank you so much uh, for coming on the show. Let's talk soon and I look forward to seeing your career unfold a little bit more. Of course. It's been a pleasure talking with you, Caden, and I look forward to seeing you again soon. All right. Talk to you later. Hey, listeners. Thanks again for listening to another episode of The Way of Product Design. If this episode resonated with you, please share it with your network and write a couple lines on why you found it useful. And if you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help the show grow, please leave a review on Apple or Google's podcast platforms. As always, thanks for listening. You have a good one.